Father, uh, uh, we, we, come, we come regularly to meet together as a community because uh, we need you. Uh, because our pain is real, our, our questions are real, our love is real. Our need for community and fellowship is real, and, and we gather together for those reasons, and, and we don't want it to be a vain exercise. And um, So we just would ask that you would somehow work through this time this morning to bless us, to meet us, to comfort us, um, that we would walk out of here just refreshed for the week, somehow having our fire just stoked, uh, more excited about what it means to be in a relationship with you. I just pray that you would be with us specifically in this next hour. In Christ's name, amen. As I was sitting there this morning, um, I thought it would be good to kind of revisit just a philosophy of of something and and just kind of explain where we're at with this because I think sometimes there's a lot of confusion and a lot of questions. But um, in churches, there's... There's, uh, there's always a philosophy behind most things. You know, things are done for a reason. And either it's a, a thought-through philosophy or it's kind of a, a model or philosophy that you just accept by default. But I think most people in most places have reasons for doing what they do. And if you go to churches, um, uh, Protestant-type churches, you, there's kind of two prevailing ideas on preaching and teaching. And they have different names, but one would be a topical model where we're going to take topics and we're just going to talk about ideas and we're just going to kind of launch out that way. Um, and, and you can kind of do that starting with Scripture and moving out, or you can kind of, I think, which is a wrong way, get into a habit of just always talking about the kinds of things you would see on Oprah or anything else and then just slapping kind of Bible verses on it, um, but you're kind of forcing it onto the text maybe. Um, on the other extreme over here is, is, would be like a verse-by-verse, book-by-book approach to teaching Scripture. Um, we're going to go through this just all the way, verse-by-verse, verse, never deviate. And, and the interesting th- thing there was, you know, like if, if that was the way it was being done in, in uh, Jesus' day, they might not have been in Isaiah when he stood up to proclaim that this prophecy is fulfilled today, and he, he might have had to have waited for like two years just so that he could say, this prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing today. Th- that's a great approach because it takes the Bible and it's a jumping off point. And over time, you begin to really learn Scripture. Um, but what's interesting about that is it's, it's, a, it's a foreign philosophy. Foreign in the sense that you never see Jesus or Paul modeling that. They never got up and just always said, okay, well, well, this is the verse we're in this week, and they just stick to that and never talk about anything else. You see them talking about relevant topics in a biblical way, and you see them stepping back and looking at a big picture and bringing biblical viewpoints to bear on that. And so we see kind of this, this, this philosophy where they're teaching Scripture, but they're also getting over here and talking about topics and ideas. Does that make sense? And so, so how do we land on this as a church? Like, what, what kind of a philosophy do we adopt? And we could go over here and just always talk about ideas, but then the fault of this is maybe like five years in, you've got people that just don't know anything about the books of the Bible, and I think, I think you can overdose on this. 
And I think you can get too rigid over here where you miss talking about things that you kind of need to talk about at certain times, points in times. And so, like most things at Antioch, we kind of land in the middle. It's the Bible that's our foundation. Everything that we teach has to come from Scripture. We don't just come up with fanciful ideas and go, ooh, 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 this is exciting, and it's not grounded in anything. And at the same time, we can overdose on that. And so we, like, like in January when we start on the book of John, we want to get into books of the Bible so that as we move through in time, we actually learn what certain books of the Bible have to teach kind of sequentially as we go through them. So just if you've been in the church for a while, you know that there's kind of just differing viewpoints, and we land in the middle. Everything we teach has to be biblical. At times, it's going to be topical. At, at times, it's going to be expositional. And hopefully, um, we're just prayerful enough to follow the Spirit's leading in that. Maybe that means nothing to you, but I thought since we haven't talked about it, um, it would be worth just kind of sharing where our philosophy is on that. Where we're at this morning is, is on the topical side. We're stepping back. We started it last week, and we're trying to analyze paradigms in some sense and say, wait a second. We live within a culture, a certain point in time in America, and there's cultural values and cultural things that we take for granted, and, and we just kind of, that's just who we are, but not, those things aren't always what they ought to be. Every culture has, has areas where it deviates from what God would want it to be. And sometimes we have to step back and realize or see those things kind of set in relief and go, you know what, we have to pivot off of that and get back to thinking biblically. And the thing we kind of started with was attacking a, a model that's in the church, kind of um, the, the church thinking, the conferences, the books, the church growth movement. And that's that pastors are taught that the way to do a church is to create vision. You're the senior pastor, so you're the vision bearer for that congregation. So you need to get a, a grand vision, a grand idea that's very specific. Remember, a vision, according to this, is a clear picture of a foreseeable and desirable future. So that everyone can get excited about um, this church and growing and getting bigger and um, for 20 years in the church growth movement, if your church stagnated, the number one remedy for that, that problem was to go into a building campaign. Rally the people towards a building campaign. And when you get greater facilities where such a consumer culture, your church will grow. And so, you know, the, the philosophy is always growth is, is natural. Trees grow, living things grow. So growth is good. So let's create a vision for growth, for people and acres, and then let's pull everyone together towards this common goal, this vision with a capital V, and that's going to be our agenda, our program, our plan, our vision, and the, and the senior pastor, this is his goal, and it's going to unify everybody toward this vision. And we started to kind of call that into question and say, um, is that really Right? I mean, it works. It works. It's, it's uh, clarity's a huge thing. Structure's a great thing. Um, it works. But is it what we're supposed to be doing as churches? And so we read Bonhoeffer. And Bonhoeffer in Life Together says this. He says, God hates visionary dreaming. <laughs> I, I mean... 
it's fun for me because I've been in the church world for over a decade now, and anyone that's been in the church world or gone to leadership conferences or been a pastor, you know how 180 degrees out what Bonhoeffer is, is saying here. It's just so in the face of what the prevailing paradigm or idea is. Okay? It's so against it that I remember in 98 when I first read this, 5 o'clock in the afternoon, late in the afternoon, in this little room I was renting when I was in grad school, and I read this. This is in California. I still remember it's daylight coming through the windows. I read this. I sat up, and I started thinking and pondering, and I was panicked, and, I, and this was the idea I had. When I plant a church someday, I can't let anyone, in my church, read this. I absolutely cannot let anybody read this because if I let them read Bonhoeffer here, they won't follow my vision. And my vision is what's supposed to unify the community. It's what's supposed to pull us together. You know, so like, we've got to have like a banned books list, you know, and, and Bonhoeffer's going to be at the top of the books we burn. So that we'll be a unified and, and together church. And Bonhoeffer says this. By the way, like our staff went through this. Okay, I've come full circle to a completely different way of seeing things. Our staff has gone through this. We sell this book um, at the book table everywhere. I love this. I want everyone to read it. And listen to what it says. God hates visionary dreaming. It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. We create an idol of this vision, and God has to bless this if we're going to define ourselves as successful. This becomes the scotch tape on the wall, like a growth chart when you're a kid. Remember, like, I've grown an inch. In the Brady Bunch episode where the kid's like hanging from the monkey bars and then going in and measure himself. And, and that's how we define success as we move towards that vision, Okay. And so God now has to bless this, and, and I would have to, to accomplish this if we're going to be able to say that it was good and successful and what it ought to be. And so we completely reversed that thing. Blackaby said, don't pray that God blesses what you're doing. Find out what God's blessing and do that. And we reverse that and say, God, I demand you bless this. This idol is higher than you. You, God, have to serve my agenda. It's what Bonhoeffer's saying. The proud, pretentious man with this vision enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and ju- judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. He stands adamant, a living reproach to all others in the circle of brethren. He acts as if he is the creator of the Christian community, as if his dream binds men together. I was taught you create vision for your church so that everyone would rally around that vision. Bonhoeffer says, don't do it. Why? Because people will rally around your vision. I <laughs> thought that was the idea. Bonhoeffer says, no. He goes on and says, um, God has already laid the, the only foundation of our fellowship because God has bound us together in one body with other Christians in Jesus Christ. It's not supposed to be an institution. It's not supposed to be a business. This is a great business model. We're supposed to be a family. We're supposed to be an organic thing and community. And so what we began to realize is instead of having this, we're supposed to kind of realize that God, that our life and this community life, it's, it's more random. It's, it's a story. 
And in a story, you don't know where it's kind of going. You can't see into the future. You know where you've been. You kind of know the trajectory. But things are going to happen that you can't predict. Both good things that you want to be uh, able to follow and react to when God brings them, and bad things that you didn't expect. And in the bad things, when they happen here, bad things set you back to zero. So, oh, God. I'm going to judge you according to this. You set us back to zero. God, you're, 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 you're not with the program. It's red light, green light. And in my life or in the church's life, I just got set back to zero. Does anyone feel like that? Maybe recently? Or in your life or in your relationships or in your plans that you've just gotten set back to zero? And so when we have this kind of a view of life, and we're marking off the success, and we're like, hard. it's like, I spent 10 years getting one notch, and in one week, I go back to zero, red light, green light, back to the beginning. God, how can I be excited about what's going on right now, because I'm going backwards. On this model here, where, where life is a story, um, all of a sudden, you end up going here, It's not backwards, it's somewhere unexpected. You're not going backwards, you're going somewhere that you didn't envision going. And what God wants to say to us in our moments of pain is, is guess what? Um, I just created an opportunity, if you would see it. If you would stop analyzing it against your false metric here, and realize that there are opportunities for relationships, for ministry, for you to rethink life, for you to change, for you to, to reevaluate your values, for you to serve me better, learn from me more, um, experience the joy of the Lord in a different way. There's an opportunity with pain. That if you would get out of this red light, green light model, you would see, okay? So we kind of set up this false thing. And I'm, I'm trying to re- rehash it just a little bit. If you've ever wondered why there's so much competition in churches, when we set up this vision of acres and numbers, just like the restaurant. Remember last week I talked about, this is a great model for a restaurant. I want to be the restaurant in, in Bend that everybody goes to because if the restaurant's going to be successful, I have to have repeat business, right? What's the vision for every other restaurant in Bend? Same thing. So they can't all thrive, Correct? And so the ones that win are the ones that out-compete. So when every church in town begins to, to aim at the same vision of, of we're going to be the church that reaches all the lost, that grows and grows and grows, that has the biggest and best building, well, when someone else is creating that same vision, pretty soon you're going to have to out-compete them because your vision, this idol that you've created, demands that you make decisions that serve that vision. And so when opportunities come or collaboration comes or, or, or other things that would, in some sense, take away from the momentum towards that vision, you have to push them aside. That's why there's so much competition in churches. It's why nobody liked Jesus in Jesus' day. Because the men who were in charge, who loved the fancy seats in the synagogues, and loved to be called by fancy titles, and loved to be the ones that were driving the ship towards their vision, saw Jesus come along and said, I don't win in this scenario. It's not whether people get served 
or the kingdom grows in this scenario. It's that I don't win in this scenario. And so they had to be against it. Um, look, I, I'm teaching this stuff because God's impressing on my heart. Okay? Not because I'm not competitive. I'm not, seriously. Um, you, you put me in any competitive situation and, and, and I look possessed. Like my, I, my wife in our first year of marriage, like, had to leave the house when, when board games came out. Risk and stuff like that. I'm ridiculously competitive. Okay? It's, I'm not just doing this because this is just me and I'm just nice and, and mamby-pamby. And, you know, I've told you before, you know, I don't do hospital visits because I go into the rooms and people's blood pressure goes up and it's just not a good thing, right? They ask me to leave. Okay, I'm, this, is, this, is, this is right. This is right. Whether it serves me or not, it's just right. It, it, it grounds it where it's supposed to be on the person and work of Jesus Christ serving a great God. Okay, and, and I also began to think, you know what? This is just a false view of reality. We're kind of saying that, that we're going to fly like an airplane to our destination. And life, the way God has created it, is, is a car going through the twists and turns of life where you only get to see about 100 yards in front of the car because that's where the headlights are shining. And we have to position ourselves. Remember James last week we talked about, and uh, James says, don't make these plans to go to a city for this many years and make all this kinds of money. He goes, you know what? Instead of saying that, you ought to say, I'm going to go there and if it's God's will. And if it's God's will, I'll stay for a period of time and do my best. But I'm going to put my hands out and be submissive to where God is going to lead. I'm always looking and saying, God, where are you going to take me? Even if it's unexpected, even if it hurts, I want to follow. Okay. Uh, so I reread this letter this week on Monday. Or, uh, it was on my desk Sunday. Brought it into staff meeting on Monday. Talked about it and then sent it to my staff. But I wrote a letter to two, two pastors one, before we planted the church. And one of them wrote me back, Eugene Peterson. Now, Eugene Peterson is in his late 70s. Uh, he's the guy that uh, wrote out the message translation, which is funny because if you, if you read any articles with him, um, he prefers the King James Version to be taught, like in churches. Like, you know, he just was doing that for a devotional thing and spent, you know, the better part of his life really trying to think through Scripture and just write it out like as a devotional exercise. A really interesting thing. But he's known as a pastor to pastors because most of his books deal with trying to help pastors find the heart of God. He's, he's just a really cool guy that way. Well, I wrote him a letter, and he wrote me back. Um, Kip made it look all pretty. Um, and, uh, and so I found it after preaching on this stuff last week, and it was funny, I was rereading it, and I go, wow, this is really hilarious. Listen to what um, he says. Um, kind of the, the first paragraph after his introductory thing, he, he's talking about advice for planting a church. And he was humble enough to say, hey, I don't think I have any great advice, but here's just some, some thoughts. And he says this, the things that I did that I think still apply are this. One, I ignored, I ignored the church growth books and counsel. I am convinced that it is basically flawed. Imagining the church as something that can be developed by strategies and techniques, eroding the biblical imagination that understands church as a creation of the Holy Spirit. Church growth rhetoric puts me in charge, regardless of the pious disclaimers to the contrary. 
Too much American culture gets into shaping such congregations. They turn out to be consumer congregations. Build a building and, hey, more people will come. Why? Because it's just nicer. Um, so I read this and I just started saying, man, this is kind of cool. Like, there's a, there's a thread of that. And I, I'm hoping that with more of the kind of church plants that are cropping up in the, in the Northwest and other places that, that we'll kind of find this organic thread and, and maybe begin to leave some of the American models of, or business models of doing church that have just been out there. Now, what's a critique of this that someone would say, hey, but wait a second. If we just are going to be lackadaisical and just not know where we're driving the ship, doesn't that seem like bad leadership? Now, I'm not saying we're going to be lackadaisical, okay? Um, I'm not saying that at all. I think leadership is a high bar. I think it's a gift. People have leadership gifts. And I think you think things through. You bring wisdom and discernment to bear to optimize the things that you're doing and the things that you feel like you need to do to do the work of God, okay? What I'm saying is this, that we as leaders at this church, the elders, we're under shepherds. It's a biblical phrase, okay? Which means we're leaders, but we're men under an authority. We have a chief shepherd. So we we don't just get to make up the rules and then drive towards it. We're leading people, but we're responsible and we're accountable to the chief shepherd who's got ideas that we might not even know about yet. And so as we're trying to lead and lead effectively, we're not lackadaisical. We're just doing it kind of submissively or with discernment to say, when God changes direction on us, we want to know it. We want to position ourselves for that. So 1 Peter 5, if you want to read about it, it talks to elders, reminding them that there's a chief shepherd. David, what I love about Psalm 23 is David's this crazy leader personality. And here he writes this whole psalm envisioning himself as the sheep underneath the shepherd. A great leader is a shepherd that sees himself as a sheep. Does that make sense? So it's not that we're going to be lackadaisical. It's that we're going to just be really focused on following, not driving. I think here's the key, if you want me to sum it up for you. Um, This model of church growth puts results and progress before rest. We have to achieve results and we have to make progress and then we'll rest because success has been achieved. The model... I think that God would have for church or like family, what you're supposed to do in your family and your relationships is that you find your rest in God first and then you trust him for the results. Peace doesn't come on the back end of success, even though that's what America tells us. Peace is supposed to be found in God first and then we trust him to bring certain results. If we think results are king, we're going we're gonna to worship it. And it's going to become our idol and our God. We have to have results to be successful, and then we'll rest. So God, don't bother me now. I'm close. I'm about to get over this hump. It's going to come. If I could just keep going, my job, my career, my retirement, my relationships, my status, my success, this particular church will get there, and then I'll rest, and I'll talk to you, God. And I'll be really spiritual, and I'll, and I'll sit in a cross-legged lotus, you know, every day and hum and, and do yoga, whatever. But I got to achieve the results before I can rest. And what I think we're saying is rest comes first. And when we, when we, when we really get there, we begin to realize results aren't king. 
They're not higher than God. And you know what? Um, it's okay if they don't come the way we see them coming. So I remember hearing a message by a guy by the name of Francis Chan. Francis Chan built a church in Simi Valley, one of the richest counties in America. And after a while, he just kind of went on a sabbatical and just rethought everything. And one night he was sitting there in bed with his wife reading and stuff like that. She was reading and he just looks at her and he just drops this comment on her. He says, you know what, honey? If Jesus had a church in Simi Valley, my church would be bigger. And she looks at him and is like, well, you're a heretic. Like, how could you say such a silly thing like that? What do you mean? And he says, no, th- think about it. If Jesus had a church in Simi Valley, my church would be bigger. The reason it would be bigger is because Jesus would have a higher bar of expectation. Because he wouldn't be as tied to results as we are in the American church. That we're, we're, we're all about growth and growth is king and so we won't go backwards. And sure, growth is important. But anything that grows too, there's a biblical principle here called pruning. Where you take away bad things and scoop them up and go burn them because it it helps with the health of the organism. And when was the last time you heard a pastor or a conference talk about the strategic value of going backwards? I was having a conversation with a guy over coffee this last week. And and we started joking. and, And we've got welcome bags for people that come in. We started thinking, like, wouldn't it be cool we could, like, have an exit bag? You know, here you go. On your way out, um, it's a list of legalistic churches you can go to. Um, we love you. We'll be praying for you. But um, I started thinking about some cool things we could put in there. I don't think the elders will go for it, so you don't need to worry about it. But seriously, when was the last time you saw anybody espouse that as a part of God's program, it's not all about growth. Sometimes going backwards is a healthy thing. Jesus said, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. You let the wrong thing in and it can begin to poison the well. So Chan was saying, Jesus has a higher bar than I do. So his church would be smaller. Jesus never had thousands of people following him. You know, he might have had for certain events, but I mean, he kept pruning back and had a small group and he changed the world with it. I've got a dream. I shared on Monday a dream with the staff. I was like, you know what? I want to ruin church for you uh, if you were to ever leave. Antioch needs to be so successful that if you ever went somewhere else and got involved in a church, you just would be like, I can't do this. I've got to go back to Bend. If I accomplished that goal, do you think it would be because Antioch was 2,000 people? Or because we created an environment where we were so dependent on God that you would see it kind of everywhere you went and it would satisfy you kind of in this deep place within you that this is just rich it's just rich in, in the proximity of this church to God and, and the value we place on that is, is just, it's just rich. If we succeeded in ruining church for you, it would not be because of size. It would be because of dependence um, and something that would just ring true. I think a great illustration of this, and then I'll get off this kick, okay? Um is the Tower of Babel. Sorry about that. This is too big of a cough drop. I can't talk now, which is funny because I'm about to talk about languages. Um, the Tower of Babel... i got to get rid of this thing. 
Tower of Babel, a bunch of people came with a spiritual goal to build the building up towards heaven. And they had a unified vision and clear language, and they were so successful. Yet not only was God not in it, God was offended by it. Sometimes I think we're building like our little towers of Babel and we just delude ourselves because it looks spiritual, right? So God comes down and he messes up their language to kind of divide them. So you see this interesting parallel in Scripture that when Jesus leaves, he tells his disciples, I don't want you to go into Jerusalem and start building the Tower of Babel. Okay, don't, don't get your project, don't get your agenda, don't do it yourself. I want you to sit and wait and you don't know what's coming. Just sit and wait for the Holy Spirit. And so they kind of sit there and they're scared and prayer meetings and all that. And then one day, um, completely unpredictable, God shows up and completely does this crazy thing through the Holy Spirit and these like, like, like big fire things or whatever you read the book of Acts. And, and basically gives them the gift of languages. The gift of languages. It'd be like allowing me to be able to speak Spanish. Right? Just, wow, miracle. Gives them back the gift of languages so that they walk out into this metropolitan area of Jerusalem, like in New York, and all of a sudden, key people from all around the Roman Empire that come here, they're going to eventually go back to their areas, get to hear the gospel in their language. And so in humility, following what God is doing, he comes and emboldens their faith, gives them this miraculous ability to speak to other people in their their languages, and God says, I'm going to do it. Don't erect your plans. This isn't the Tower of Babel. I am going to lead and you are going to follow and we're going to accomplish my purposes. So I I think we see this amazing parallel in Scripture. And the bottom line of it all is that we have to develop this trust We have to develop this trust that God is going to accomplish what he says he's going to accomplish. So we have to sell out in our church and in our own lives to saying, if we look backwards, our life is a story. And if we look forward, it's not going to be any different. It's not going to be any different. And so we have to accept this journey that God has put us on and put him in charge. Now, here's where we pivot. This is a sermon on doubt, by the way. We're only going to be able to scratch the surface, so there's a, there's a bunch of books that we put together and put at the book table out back um, on doubt and unbelief and things like that just to help you. So make sure you see the book table afterwards. But, but here's where we pivot, okay, because um, here are the questions. If I sell out to story, um, I'm going to have questions that come up. I'm going to feel like I'm out on a limb at times, not knowing where I'm going. I'm going to feel exposed and vulnerable. And so the guy who sells all is going to ask at some point, um, should I really have done that? I mean, geez, it was like really cool at the time, but now I feel pretty exposed. Was that, was that something I really should have done? And the person who talks about their faith at work is going to think, um, boy, hey, that was really awkward. Sounded a lot better when it was in my idea and I was envisioning how this was going to go. And, and you know what? That was really awkward. Maybe I shouldn't have done it. And the single person who's made the decision to get involved in a church is going to think, why did I do this? Um, it doesn't make me look cool. 
And there's a crowd of people that do a lot of things I can't do. And, and maybe, maybe it would be fun if I had have just chosen to be in that crowd on a regular basis. And was this really a good decision? And the husband or wife that had an opportunity to get out of a marriage but stuck with it is going to wonder at some point, did I make a mistake? Did I waste my chance? That's real life. And we're always going to struggle with doubt and unbelief. And when we're confused, we're going to think maybe there was an easier way. Maybe I made a wrong turn and maybe I did it how I shouldn't. And what's going to happen at that time is is we're questioning our faith. And if you'll turn to Hebrews chapter 3, I want to read just a few verses for you here. In those moments of doubt when we're going through the story and we can't see where we're at, we're living by faith, there is nothing to see, okay? We're going to have to question that faith because we're scared to death. And it says here at the end of Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 17, I don't know what I start with on screen for you, but... I'm going to start in verse 17. It says this, And with whom was God angry for 40 years? This is talking about the Israelites in the desert. And if you don't know the story, it's real simple. They come out 40 years. They're not allowed to go into the promised land. And they just wander in circles for 40 years. Just up, down, left, right in this little desert. Okay? It says, Now who was God angry with when they were wandering around for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned? The generation, right, whose bodies fell in the desert. And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? And so here's the concluding verse, verse 19. So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Now this is just paradigm shattering here. Okay, Why did the Israelites not get to go into the promised land? Simple answer, oh, they disobeyed God. Okay, that's the simple answer. What's the real answer? They disobeyed because of what? They disobeyed because of unbelief. They disobeyed because of doubt. They disobeyed because they no longer trusted that God really knew what he was doing. And their actions followed. When my wife no longer trusts that I know where I'm driving, she doesn't look like a nice, respectful, I love you wife. She gets really frustrated. And when the Israelites began to doubt that God knew what he was doing and he was really driving this thing, their actions followed and they sinned. So what is beneath disobedience? Unbelief. Doubt. So, if we toggle that thing over, what does obedience come from? If disobedience comes comes from unbelief, what does obedience come from? Belief. So, faith leads to obedience. Well, what does obedience have to do with faith? Isn't, isn't faith just the, the acceptance that there is a higher power up there? Isn't faith just belief in the proposition that there is a God that exists? Isn't that what faith is? So how does faith lead to something like obedience? Faith is just 
knowledge, isn't it? Well, that's a good question, right? So let's look at a definition of faith. So if you'll turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11.6 says this. It says this. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him, one, must believe that he exists, knowledge, and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. What's that? It's trusting that God is going to deliver on the promises he made. He said, follow me and I will take care of you. Romans 8.28, all things work for good to those who are called according to his purposes. He's made a promise that if you will follow him, he will take care of you and bless you. Doesn't mean it's always easy. Doesn't mean that you won't run into those unexpected things that feel like going back to zero. It means that if you sustain that trust, God will take care of you. So not only do you believe that he exists, you trust that he's going to deliver. And that trust leads to what? Obedience. You sustain and endure in following Jesus or following God. And that's really what obedience is. Instead of veering off because sin promises something opposite of what God promises. I'm I'm following God today. I don't know. I've got doubts. Is this really going to get me somewhere? Wow, look at my friend over there. He's throwing everything out the window, doing whatever the heck he wants, and he looks happy. There's kind of an alluring, enticing promise that if I were to deviate and go do that action, then I would really be fulfilled and satisfied. God says, follow me and you'll be satisfied. Ah, this says follow it and it kind of promises I'll be satisfied here. I've got a choice. I'm either going to believe and it leads to obedience of God or I'm going to have unbelief which leads to disobedience. Does that make sense? Your faith, how you handle your doubts has everything to do with your relationship with God and ultimately your ability to follow and obey. And obey. Listen to what it says in Romans 4. Romans chapter 4 about Abraham. It says this, Romans chapter 4 verse 20. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. He had unbelief. We all deal with doubt. Look, if you're coming in here this morning going, man, I struggle. I struggle believing that God is there, that he's good, that he even knows that I exist, that he's willing to take care of me, that these circumstances in my life are going to ever change. Or, or be pointed back towards some, something good. Something that even resembles good. I struggle with that. We all do. Okay? So here's Abraham struggling with that. He's got met. We all have that, that element of you know, unbelief. Jesus said, if you have just a mustard seed of faith, 
Okay, it doesn't take much. It's alive, and you want to nurture that. But we all have the correlating unbelief. And Abraham didn't waver because of the unbelief. He stood fast and trusted that what God said he was going to do as he moved forward, take care of him, follow through on his promises, that, that God really had the power and ability and character to do that. He, he followed through on that and didn't waver through unbelief. And so Abraham became the model of what righteousness is. His faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. You see, this Christian thing isn't just about believing that there's a higher power or a God exists. It's about somehow taking that little ounce of faith that you've got and saying, God, I believe that you're reliable and trustworthy, and I'm going to hang on to it. Through all the twists and turns of life, I'm going to nurture my faith so that I might follow and obey you. And when I'm presented with unbelief, I'm going to call it what it is. It's enticing, it's alluring, but it's deceptive. And if I veer and go down this path, I'm leaving you. So God, help me with my faith. So where are we getting with all this? We're getting somewhere that basically says, prayer has a reason. Faith nurturing, joy inspiring, desperate heart crying prayer that says, I can't do this alone, God, has a place in the believer's life. It's not just this thing that we do before dinner because we believe that God exists. It's this thing that says, I'm trying to endure and persevere, and it's hard. And and God, I need you to come and to strengthen me. I I don't feel like I can continue. It's that point in the marathon where I want to give up. It's, It's Wednesday, the hump day in the week. I don't know if I can continue. And you know what? Everywhere around me are people that reduce life down to this, just like around Moses in the desert. All the engineers that said, hey, Moses, you're an idiot. We know how to solve this. Point north and go straight. You need water? Okay, let's go to where there's a river. Moses, you're an idiot, and we don't trust you anymore. And they began to grumble and complain against Moses. So the people don't trust Moses. Moses comes to God and says, God, what have you done? You've put me in this situation. Look, the people don't trust me. You've got to do something. And God says, Moses, settle down. It's all under control. It's always been under control. Go and speak to that rock and water's going to come out. And what does Moses do? Moses goes and hits the rock like he'd done the last time. And God says, you know what? You're just like them and you're not going to enter the promised land either. They didn't trust you. Guess what, Moses? You didn't trust me. It's all about trust and you had the opportunity to model for them trust in me. You're just like them. You complained, doubted, and didn't follow through and trust me. I said do this. You did the opposite. It's all about trust. And there's going to be those people, and you're going to feel at times like you just want to rebel, and you want to do it the way you know how to do it. You want to break out of this kind of path that God's got you in, and you want to listen to the dissenting voices, and you want to get back on the easy road instead of that kind of like narrow, winding, hard road. And there's, there's that logic that comes in. Point north and go straight. That's what prayer is for. Prayer is for that. Prayer is for the I don't understand and I'm tired and I'm desperate and I'm needy 
And God, there's only one thing that's going to strengthen me. And that's my faith in you being grown. For you to, to kind of meet me here and make me realize I'm not walking through the valley of the shadow of death by myself. That you're there with me. I've got to sense that you're there if I'm going to sustain. It's the only thing that's going to do it. It's a, it's a game of chicken that we're playing with God. We really get to these moments of panic and doubt. I've got to veer the car, God. I can't keep going straight down this road. God says, no, you trust me. You trust me, even when it's difficult. We need to learn to live the question. Uh, it's a writer that I love that just says that. The essence of the spiritual life is learning to live the question. It's not going and finding answers to every question. It's learning to have peace before results. Instead of demanding results before we're willing to rest and have peace. So you're coming in this morning and you're thinking, is God going to provide for me financially? That's a question that we live with, right? Is God going to provide for me emotionally? Is God going to take away the pain? Is God going to pay them back for what they did? Is God going to really work all things out for good in my life? I'm not giving you the answer to any of those questions. I'm saying we have to learn to live those questions and live them in faith and not in unbelief. The worship team is going to come back up and we're going to sing two more songs, closing in worship. And then I'm going to come up at the end of the service and close it. And we're going to do something we've never done before. If you're coming in this morning and you feel like there's just someone you need to talk to or you just need someone to pray with you, for strength. Um, there's going to be some of the elders and, and some women up front here after the service. And we're just going to say, if that's what you need, just to have someone comfort you and hopefully just give you a little bit of strength and energy to continue on, um, to fight on, to hold on to your belief, that you can come and, and pray with them. It's something we've never done before. We're going to do this morning. So let me just read in closing. Again, Romans. And the model of what righteousness is, it's the faith of Abraham. And Abraham, he didn't waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith, giving glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he'd promised. Are we willing to believe this morning that God is willing, able, and has the character to follow through on the promises that he's made to us? Do we really believe that God is faithful and worthy of our faith? Amen.